Welcome to the Propaganda Report. I'm Monica Perez. I'm Brad here, Binkley. Here with my normal co-host, Brad Binkley. And we have a very special guest today. As you all know, we do not do as many interviews as, as maybe we should. But when something really important comes up, we absolutely make it a priority. So today, there we have as a guest somebody I have wanted to talk to for years, actually, because he's really the only person I know who can explain uh, what his area of expertise or at least of interest is as well as he does. This is David Crow. He's a telecommunications consultant, environmentalist, writer, and critic of science and medicine. He's a founder of the Green Party of Alberta. He was the founder of the Alberta Reappraising AIDS Society and is the president of Rethinking AIDS. He's the co-host of the podcast, How Positive Are You? And host of the podcast, The Infectious Myth. And that last thing there is uh, something that our listeners, a lot of listeners probably won't even know what that means. So hello, David, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Monica, so much for having me on your show today. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Yes, and what I want to, I hope so, I really appreciate your time. I know you're busy, and what I'm really trying to do, I was really blown away the first time I heard you interviewed because it hadn't even occurred to me that you know, what it means, the expression germ theory really means. And as soon as you started talking, I thought, yeah, what exactly is a virus? And I, I don't really understand. And it seems like from now, you kind of woke me up to being aware of some of the holes in virology. And I just was wondering if you could kind of just tell us what you know, you call your your brand is the infectious myth. Can you summarize for us kind of what the myth is and what you think the truth really is? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm really focused on viruses and other modern concepts. So in my book, which I hope to call the infectious myth, I will talk about mad cow disease, which was believed to be caused by prion, which is just protein. So it's even smaller and, you know, less impressive than a virus. Um, I, I agree that there are infections caused by bacteria and parasites and things like that, and, and so I'm not really covering those, although I do tend to think that things like tuberculosis, uh, the infectious component of that is is overemphasized. I mean, the reason why miners in South Africa get tuberculosis and doctors don't is because miners have damaged lungs, and uh, so it's not really true to say that tuberculosis is purely an infectious disease. But with viruses, it's much worse than that. And gradually, I've come to the realization that the whole field of virology might be rotten. And that viruses are just a way to cover up environmental diseases. And, and basically, I'm using environment in the broadest possible um, sense. Not just the air you breathe and the water you drink, but if you take pharmaceutical drugs, if you take recreational drugs, if you're exposed to pesticides, um, all of those things are our immediate environment, and uh, a lot of them can cause disease. And there's a big incentive to blame that on a on a virus. Um, for example, I was shocked when somebody told me that polio might have been caused by uh, exposure to pesticides. But as I looked at the data I was being challenged with, I, I realized, you know, why does polio have this incredible seasonality? So it only occurs during the fruit harvest season, no matter where you are in the world. And, you know, prior to World War II, fruits were treated with arsenic-based 
pesticides. That was the most common type of pesticide. And after World War II, there was a massive usage of the organochlorines and then later the organophosphates. And this correlates greatly with polio. And there's many other things too. That's just one data point. Um, but that kind of blew me away. And then I started to look at I had looked at HIV first um, and all the environmental connections in terms of, you know, exposure to blood transfusions, uh, the use of inhalant drugs called poppers by gay men. Um, so I started to ask the question, you know, when we blame HIV or we blame the coronavirus, are we actually dealing with an external infectious agent? And the fact is that um, virologists have been cheating uh, since the 1930s. Before the 1930s, they just had to make stuff up because they didn't have the electron microscope. So the 1930s should have been the beginning of the golden age of virology because now you can see things as small as what they thought viruses um, were. But the reality was they couldn't. They couldn't purify the And they the should have kind of just admitted that, right? Because that's when it would have been like, wow, your theory was right and... I mean, what was the odds that they really got it right? And it's still just a theory that isn't absolutely yeah. proven. I mean, there's a wonderful paper by a famous virologist of the 1930s named Thomas Rivers. And I, I think it was an after-dinner speech. And that might be important because he might have been a bit more relaxed in what he was saying. <laughs> it wasn't really a formal scientific paper. Um, but it's still cited today. But, but he said something, I'm paraphrasing slightly, it is obvious that viral diseases have not been have not satisfied Cox postulates, and Cox postulates are how you prove that a pathogen causes a disease. So, if you haven't satisfied Cox postulates, you haven't proved that a single viral disease causes a, a single virus causes a disease. And so, his solution was not to say maybe us virologists need to go have, you know, a come to Jesus moment and see whether we've actually got anything here or we're totally down on the wrong track, what he said was, we need to water uh, the standards for determining, determining causality down to the point where we can meet them. Well, and Cox postulates, are, as I understand them, where you can isolate the microbe from the diseased host, then inject those into a healthy host and find the same disease, and then maybe even do that one more time just to make sure that it's the disease that's okay. that the microbe is causing the disease or not. So you, you fell into a little trap there because oh, you used the okay. word isolation. Okay, so you would think that isolation and purification mean the same thing. Uh, the, the word isola in Latin and Italian means island. It means something separate from anything else. So a normal person would think that isolation means you've separated the virus from everything else. That's not how virologists use it. Virologists use isolation to mean that we found a nonspecific signal or sign that could be interpreted as the presence of a virus. So, for example, with the coronavirus, they add um, impure materials, say a nasal swab, to a cell culture, and some of the cells die. And that's isolation of the virus. They haven't seen the virus. Uh, they, they have no information about the virus, oh. but they've seen some cells die, and they call it isolation. Uh, with HIV, there's a certain protein called P24. If they see that, that's isolation. Um, HIV also in, uh, is believed to use the enzyme reverse transcriptase. And if they see evidence 
they can't see the enzyme directly, but if they see evidence that the enzyme is active, then they say that's isolation, despite the fact that they know that reverse transcriptase is found in normal cells. It's not specific to any virus, let alone uh, HIV. And AIDS specifically, has there been any case where they've, even by their own definition, isolated the, the causal microbe or whatever and created it into a new host? So, so what they used to do is they would, um, they would add impure materials, say, so blood serum or something like that, to a cell culture. And then they'd let the cell culture kind of stew. So you take some cancerous cells and you add a bunch of stimulating uh, biological components, some chemicals, as well as your sample from somebody you think has AIDS. And you, you let it uh, uh, stew for a while. Then you take the liquid off the cell culture and you say, okay, this liquid is what's going to contain the viruses. Then you spin or centrifuge uh, this material at high speeds and you say to yourself that a certain density, so when you spin at high speeds, everything spreads out according to the density of the object. And so they say, um, you know, viruses have this particular density, so we'll pull off the stuff at that part of the gradient. So they did this for a long time, and they said, this is pure virus. It wasn't until 1997. So, okay, HIV was supposedly discovered in 1981. So we're talking 16 years later. They finally put this material under an electron microscope, and they discovered it was at least 90% impurities and maybe 100%. Uh, you can't look at an electron microscope picture and know that you're looking at a virus because there are... Uh, things called exosomes or microvesicles that look exactly like viruses, but which are um, produced by your own body. And uh, they may be produced because of disease processes or as some kind of messenger between different parts of your body. Uh, the function is not really fully understood, but it is known that you can have exosomes and microvesicles without um, any virus infection. So they're, they're looking at this and going, well, this is at least 90% impurities. And there were two papers by, by different groups of scientists that came to the same conclusion. So then they started calling it concentrated virus. But I mean, how concentrated is, is virus when the maximum concentration is, is 10%? Uh, and there's really no proof that any of the material is viral. You know, I read a book by Nancy Turner Banks. I think it was called something like Exploding the AIDS Cancer Paradigm. And uh, I thought yes. she did a great um, job. I mean, I'm not, I can't summarize it, but I, I thought she did a great job of explaining that those particles that they find were a byproduct of the fact that AIDS, which is a syndrome that results from kind of abusive or environmental factors, can result in those things. You're cells exploding and leaving fragments of that stuff everywhere and it was it's misidentified or misinterpreted deliberately perhaps uh, yeah uh, one of the things i liked about uh, nancy turner banks was a harvard educated md and uh early in her career she worked with uh, transplant patients and they need to be immune suppressed so this drug company called now called GlaxoSmithKline, I, I don't know exactly what the name was back then had this drug uh, which interfered with DNA synthesis, which means it stops cells from dividing. And of course, your immune system cells divide all the time. So this suppresses the immune system, but it's also extremely toxic. 
so this this company used this drug, and then GlaxoSmithKline took a very very similar drug called AZT, and then they gave it to people who were immune suppressed. <laughs> so they knew that these this class of drugs was immune suppressive. And I, I remember one of my first memories of the AIDS era was listening to a science show before I knew anything about this. And um, this guy they're interviewing says, yes, it's remarkable that the first drug we have for this immunosuppressive condition of AIDS is actually immune suppressive. And my thought at that time, being a science grad and thinking science was wonderful and stuff, was science is amazing. Like, you do all these counterintuitive <laughs> things. Later, I learned that giving an immunosuppressive drug to people with immunosuppression is like the most insane thing that you could possibly I, do. I remember when my brother, my brother just wanted a clean bill of health. He was an IV drug user and he wanted to quit drugs. And he went to the doctor to kind of get like, okay, you don't have AIDS. But he had had like hepatitis and tuberculosis, like things that you get from kind of being a junkie living in the streets in New York. Mm -hmm. And they gave him, they did not give him a clean bill of health. He tested supposedly positive for AIDS, which I understand is like highly um, common to have a false positive, especially if you have hepatitis. IV drug users. Yeah. Mm So he had no symptoms at all. He was totally healthy. And I don't, at some point they started giving him the AZT and they were constantly monitoring his T cells, which then began to plummet. And they, every time he had a lower T cell count, they would give him more of this drug. If I recall correctly, it was a long time ago, obviously, because I don't think they, they've done it in a is, is uh, repeating the same thing and expecting a different result. And he knew. See, he knew. He said, I'm not sick. That drug is making me sick. And he stopped taking it, but it was too late. Like, it was just too late. It, 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 just it destroys your body. They were giving extremely high doses. Like, yeah. I, I think the original doses were 1,500 milligrams a day. Now, if there is AZT at all, it's like down to 200 milligrams. And they've generally substituted other drugs in the same class that don't have all the toxicity of of AZT. I always look. It was truly a horror show. When I hear people say that they died of AIDS, like Roy Cohn and other people like that, I always, always, always investigate were they given AZT and have yet to find a single example where they were not. Um, Keith Haring. I I did an interview. Yeah, I remember him. Yes. So he was an artist who died in 1992, supposedly of AIDS. And I did an interview with a guy in, in New York City who was around at that time, and he knew all these people, including Keith Haring. And he, he's, he said Keith Haring had a lot of you know, problems with like personal care. He wasn't looking after himself and things like that. He was diagnosed HIV positive, and he managed to get himself on this, this new drug, which was either DDI or DDC, which was like the second drug in the AZT class. And he was dead within two or three weeks of starting this drug. Wow. I, I think it's possible that DDI and DDC were actually worse than AZT. Following that, like by the 19, uh, by 1996, they started substituting protease inhibitors, which are not as toxic. They're still toxic, but not as toxic. And the death rate started to go down because people were taking less toxic <laughs> drugs, not because the drugs were helping them. Wow. Well, there, there is a lot of what I discovered only recently called iatrogenic disease. It's very mm-hmm. common and it's worst. It's, it's always the worst when the medicine has a kind of uh, the same side effects. The side effects of the medicine are similar to or become a part of 
the the symptoms of the disease, at least as far as the scientists go. And that is what I was wondering. And then they give more and more, just like that AZT cycle, where as you exhibit more and more of these either symptoms or side effects, you get more of the drug. And of course, you go into this downward spiral. Can I read from the AZT uh, product monograph? It's, it's yes. titled the retrovirus product monograph, but retrovir, azitothymidine, and AZT are the same drug from GlaxoSmithKline in 2001. It was often difficult to distinguish adverse events possibly associated with the administration of retrovir, AZT, from underlying signs of HIV disease or intercurrent illnesses. So they're admitting on the label oh that this drug can cause AIDS. The and, and they're saying, right. don't AIDS blame us. AIDS is just us. a syndrome. AIDS yes. is just a syndrome. And so, I don't think we're allowed to sue, so we can't really get to the bottom of it. Yeah, I mean, they told you that it, it could do mm-hmm. this. So if, if you take this drug and you get worse, it's like you read the fine print. Well, you, you signed up for that. Of course, nobody reads the fine print, and, and they know that. I mean, the fine print's like 60 pages of you know stuff about clinical trials right. and side On effects purpose. and stuff like that, and and hardly anybody reads it. And of course, patients who are who are desperate um, are the least likely people and to read I've it. Been, Doctors should read it, but they don't. I've been wondering about this with respect to COVID nineteen. Binkley here has had a lot of personal experience with um, someone he loves on on a ventilator, his mom. And uh, he cautioned us right away. He's like, you know, being on a ventilator is serious business. And I've been wondering if putting people on ventilators can actually exacerbate respiratory problems and result in all these deaths. Well, I'm glad you asked me because I've done a lot of research in this area. And, and, um, you you know, it's obvious from my biography, I'm not a doctor. Uh, I think I'm pretty good at doing research, and I, off, I have a good network of people I can call on. So I was, I've talked to an ER doc uh, in New York City, and I've, I've also read quite a few documents written by other doctors who are experts in the field who are cautioning about this. So one of the problems with, um, uh, one of the syndromes caused by ventilation is known as ventilator-associated lung injury, valley. And uh, it's very difficult to distinguish this from the actual progression of the disease. So if you put somebody on a ventilator and, and you get worse, you say, oh, my God, this coronavirus is such a terribly uh, horrible virus. But it might actually be the ventilator. Another uh, disease is called ventilator-associated pneumonia. So the ventilator can introduce bacteria into your lungs. So you're dealing with pneumonia or other lung problems. Some people say it's not pneumonia, but now you're introducing, um, uh, you know, bacteria or other things that get down the the tubes. So those can cause uh, problems. Another thing, which might be the most horrible thing, although I guess dying is the most horrible thing of all, is they've interviewed people who came off ventilators afterwards, and they tell about going into this dream state, Let me explain a little bit. In order to intubate you, they have to paralyze you. They have to sedate you and paralyze you. Because if I try to stick a tube down your throat, you are going to fight me with everything you've got. Right? You, I remember, you know, if I go to the dentist and the dentist starts poking around in the back of my mouth, I immediately start to feel like I'm choking. Um, I have, I guess, maybe a stronger gag reflex than most people, but nobody wants a tube stuck down their throat. So they have to paralyze the people in order to do this, and then they have to keep them sedated. So these people described this nightmare 
quasi-dream state where they have these horrible dreams, these fearful dreams, the entire time they're on the ventilator. And of course, they're sedated and they can't move. And the nursing staff have no idea that that it's kind of like you know the locked-in syndrome where somebody's paralyzed, but their brain is, is completely active, but they can't talk. They can't even blink their eyelids. And nobody outside has any way of knowing that you have a perfectly functional that, brain inside. That actually sounds like some of the things you've described, Binkley, about your mother. Is that not true? Yeah, there's delirium that occurs when people are on ventilators for too long. He's right. They have these almost hallucinations. They get in these dream states. They don't know the difference between waking and sleeping. And even after the fact, people who are in ICUs for even a short period of time and definitely for a long period of time, they have the equivalent the equivalent of PTSD from the experiences being in there. And the communication is very hard to communicate with people on a ventilator because he's right. If there's not somebody there and if it's just the nurses and the staff, you, you – you see somebody on a tube, and you they're usually asleep because they're in this state, and they don't realize that the person can actually hear. And so the sounds and the bells coming through, there's always dings. If you're in an ICU, there's dings and bells the entire night. It's almost uh, yeah. impossible to get a night's sleep. You hear people screaming. There was one point in time where I was sitting in a waiting room. I was waiting for coffee, and for, I'm not exaggerating, Five straight minutes, somebody was screaming bloody murder at the top of their lungs, and everybody in the, that little uh, snack area was just kind of like paralyzed, wanting to help, but not knowing what anybody could do. All the nurses were trying to help. It is a very, very taxing, trying, and scary place to be in the ICU and has a, a significant effect on your morale and physically has a major effect on you. And, and, and here's – if if – you know, if I I've, if what I've told you isn't bad enough, and and uh, Brad, you know, you, you're echoing some of the things I've said. The why are they putting so many patients on ventilators? Everybody thinks it's because coronavirus, COVID nineteen, is this terrible disease that destroys your lungs right away, and they need to do this. No, that's not true. The advice, I now have written proof of this, a, a document from the United Kingdom and a document from a New Zealand-Australia group, is advocating immediate intubation. They did this with SARS. And the reason is because they're afraid of aerosolization of the virus and they're afraid that the staff will get infected. Um, a really good paper uh, from Hong Kong, uh, I think it was published around 2005, after SARS, they did a lot of investigations of what went wrong with SARS. They looked at one hospital where they resisted intubation. They only intubated people when, when they got really bad, which didn't turn out to be that often. But in, the, in 13 other hospitals, they intubated people immediately. Every SARS patient was intubated, and it was specifically for fear of infection. The death rate in the one hospital that didn't intubate was four times lower than in the 13 hospitals that immediately intubated. So they looked at it, and they said, well, maybe this one hospital didn't have you know, that bad of patients, that the ones in the other 13 were sicker, and that's part of the reason why the higher death rate. Well, actually, that one hospital had the sickest patients. And despite that, they had a four times lower death rate. And that hospital had no transmissions of SARS to any healthcare worker. So the fear was misplaced. But what it caused was intubation of a large number of, of people uh, that was unnecessary, which caused a higher death rate. And and, you know, this, as you described it, PTSD that can occur after you, if you do survive and come off um, the ventilator. 
so they're not doing this because coronavirus is such a bad disease. They're doing it because bureaucrats at the top are telling them we're losing too many staff, becoming coronavirus positive. We can't afford to do this anymore. So you need to intubate people to protect the staff. But to I my have, mind, yeah. mm -hmm. if you're doing something that's not in the interests of the patient, that's not medicine. You know, I have read I have read more than one report of changing protocols. And I wondered like how they deal with people coming in as far as ventilating and treatment and all that kind of stuff. And I wondered without explanation, like I didn't understand the explanation. I didn't know if it was panic or what. And, and I don't find that they're giving you a lot of really valid, um, verifiable facts about what the impact of that stuff is. You're getting these reports that deaths are going up and all this kind of stuff, but it's very hard to kind of verify the causation there. And if the actual response is the thing that's creating the problem. Well, and the way they're they're reporting it in the news is they're reporting it as a, we need more ventilators, we need more ventilators, we need so many more ventilators that it's almost like it's desirable to be on a ventilator. I need to if I'm going to go, I need to be on a ventilator. It's kind of putting that attitude out there, which a ventilator can be a life saving mechanism, but only if it's absolutely necessary because it is very risky. But they're framing it as though everybody needs and wants a ventilator. If they're making all these ventilators, it's going to make it more likely that they're going to use these ventilators in cases where maybe they don't need to. Yeah, it's like if you if you if if you give the military a hundred drones. They'll use 100 drones. If you give them 1,000 yeah. drones, they'll find more places to bomb, right? Yeah. Like it's, it gets used. I heard Andrew Cuomo saying this, some incredible number that New York needed thousands of ventilators. And every other state of a similar size in America needed the same. And I thought this is, this is just crazy. The problem is that people are using the ventilators when they don't need to. And ventilators have become kind of a talisman, right? It's a symbol that if we buy ventilators, we care. Yeah. And if we don't buy ventilators, we're heartless people who are trying to save money on the backs of people dying of the coronavirus. And, it's, and it's the classic, like, just do something. Don't wait for the results. Don't wait. It's like that precautionary principle. Like, don't find out what's needed. Don't find out what the problem is. Just do something. It's like a political philosophy. Well, it's like the, the use of drugs. I mean, I, I read an article in JAMA which said the obvious. There is no drug approved for coronavirus. There's no drug for which there's evidence of safety. There's no drug for which there's evidence of effectiveness. Now, now, that was before the research on hydroxychloroquine, which I'm a little bit skeptical of, but <laughs> th there was nothing at that time. But they were giving people in China, they were giving antivirals to people. They're giving high-dose um, corticosteroids, which was a problem during SARS. In well, that's Italy. an immunosuppressant, is it not? Wouldn't that possibly lower your ability to fight stuff or not? Yeah, it can, it can definitely cause problems. Um, following SARS, people who had a lot of uh, steroids had uh, sometimes permanent neurological deficit and often required hip replacements because corticosteroids damage your bones. They can cause osteonecrosis, which is mm -hmm. the, you know, the meltdown of your joints. So th that's a problem. In the first 2003 deaths in Italy, there's this now famous uh, report from the ISS, sort of Italy's top uh, medical research institute. Um, they gave uh, antiviral drugs to 52% of people who were an average age of 80. 50%, uh, uh, almost 50% had three or more coexisting 
conditions like diabetes, heart disease, liver disease, kidney disease, et cetera, et cetera. And only three out of the 2003 had no pre-existing uh, conditions. 27% of people were given corticosteroids, and they did not provide any information on intubation, but the suspicion is that they were intubating a lot of these elderly people. And I think that was probably responsible for a lot of the deaths. And, and these people say, yeah. probably were going to die within the next couple of years. I mean, if, yeah. if you've got you know, kidney failure, and you've got diabetes, and you've got heart problems, and you're 90 years old, like one would predict that within the next couple of years, you're going to die. But I think what they did is they hurried these people up. They might have lived another six months. They might have lived another year. But you give them these drugs, put them on a ventilator, and they're gone in days. I've heard anecdotally a couple people, friends I have in Europe, who, and I, I do not know a single person personally who is super sick or thinks they have COVID-19. I don't know anyone. So I can't verify if somebody's being hysterical or it's power of suggestion or what. But I do know a couple people who say they know people who are super sick or in the hospital or whatever, and that it's like, this thing's really bad. It's not like your normal this or that. I mean, do you have an opinion if there is maybe something going on? Or do you, I, I guess I'm well, going to are... just, just say, are there viruses that, that are solely responsible for stuff like this? Well, I, I don't believe that. I mean, the first thing I did was to look at, at the, the one of the first papers. Um, it it found some RNA. It claimed that it looked like a coronavirus RNA, so therefore it must be the coronavirus, but I don't think they've ever actually purified a coronavirus. So I think they're misinterpreting RNA that might be produced by your body in response to uh, respiratory disease. They're misinterpreting it as a virus. I think it's really important. A lot of people don't know much about RNA. Uh, everybody knows about DNA. It's your chromosomes. RNA is equally important, and chemically, it's almost identical to DNA. Uh, there's, there's one of the four beads on the chain is different, uh, thymidine to uracil. Um, RNA generally is a single chain, whereas DNA is mm -hmm. usually in a, in a double helix. Double, yeah. um, RNA is used, there's messenger RNA. It's used to send messages around the cells. It's used to produce proteins. It has many, many uses, usages, but it's kind of more of a temporary thing. So you transcribe uh, RNA from the DNA. It's kind of like a copy of the DNA. And then it goes off and it does something. It sends a message, it produces some proteins, and then it gets, you know, sort of dissolved back in and gets reused. The parts get uh, reused. So the RNA, in, which is in every cell, every living cell of your body, uh, the RNA will change from time to time, unlike your DNA, which stays constant. And so the fact that sick people have different RNA than healthy people, you could probably find similar things with somebody who goes out and runs a marathon or, or you know, goes to the gym and does weights uh, for two hours. You'd, you'd probably find different RNA after those things than before because your body is saying, okay, we need more muscle fibers or, or whatever. We need to uh, do various things to get your body back to um, equilibrium. And if your lungs are, you know, complaining that, that there's a problem, your body is probably generating RNA to try to get other parts of your body to produce chemicals or enzymes or whatever to try to resolve the problem. Do you think that right in the here and now, this week, this month, that there is a 
you know, what is it that you think will cause something that people call the flu or the cold? And why, you know, is it possible that it's happening more right at this well, moment for some reason? Or is this really just somebody up? showed me a graph from the CDC, which is like a real time graph of of pneumonia. Uh, I guess it's just pneumonia over the past like five years, and they, they have a curve for each year. This year, the number of pneumonia deaths has, has dropped dramatically. I, I think they're reclassifying yes. pneumonia as, as coronavirus. But another thing they're doing, um, in England, they have very, very specific government advice that's on posters, that's on websites, it's everywhere you go. And it basically says, if you're sick, go home and self-isolate. So imagine that you're, um, you know, you're a 25-year-old and you get the sniffles and you got a bit of a fever. So it's like, okay, I want to be a good citizen. So I go home and I self-isolate. It says, do not come to the emergency room. Do not see your doctor. So, you know, normally you get the sniffles, you stay at home and things get better. But in, you know, a percentage of cases, it doesn't get better because it's going to progress to pneumonia. That happens to even fairly young people. And normally, you know, once three or four days goes by and you realize that this flu you have is getting worse, you'll probably go to emergency. But now you've got this advice, don't go to emergency. So you wait a few more days until you can barely breathe. And then you go to emergency. And then they say, oh, you're a coronavirus case and you're really bad. Um, so I think this, this government advice is unwittingly... Um, uh, causing people to show up at emergency when they're in much worse shape. I can personally attest to a little piece of a fact that I think supports that theory in that I know somebody who is a physician's assistant at urgent care in Northern California. And uh, he had two jobs, like part-time jobs at these two different urgent cares. And one of them is basically shutting down, laid him off because they just aren't getting the business they used to get. And I think it's because people, I wouldn't go to the emergency room only because I wouldn't want them to prematurely classify me as having something that they're, they want to uh, kind of basically arrest me for. I, I got an email from a rather upset nurse who had just been consoling uh, a new widow. And why was she a new widow? Well, because several days before, her husband had been having chest pains, and he refused to go to the emergency room because he was afraid of getting infected with the coronavirus. So he stayed at home, and then he had a massive heart attack and died. And so by the time they got him to the emergency room, it was too late. And the nurse was saying, this is, this is ridiculous. Like, he should have come when he started getting chest pains. I guess he'd had a history of heart problems, and we probably could have saved him. You know, this pregnant woman with two kids at home is now a widow because of this. And I think there's just going to be so much fallout from this. I mean, um, elderly people who are now completely alone 24 hours a day, uh, depressed people who are, who, whatever stimulation they had in their life is gone. Um, people who have a tendency towards drinking, uh, I mean, they're sitting at home. So maybe they would used to go to the casino or something like that, and maybe they'd, they'd drink, but they'd also be with other people and talking and doing other things. Now they're sitting by themselves. And what how do they about do? They the stress more. of financial ruin? Right, and domestic violence, right? Like you're <laughs> forced to be at home, and maybe you and your partner don't get on that well, and now you've got financial stress, and you have the stress of being together the whole time. And, uh, you know, it's going to increase 
the, the amount of domestic violence and, of course, drug abuse as well. And, you know, if you, if you do have a gambling problem, you may go online and gamble. So you have so much more time on your hands. Um, and they're isolating that, people when people need people around them the most. They need people to give them hope and a reason to live and a reason to fight. These older and folks help. Are, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the the other ailments that these older folks have in these nursing homes. And I'm guessing I don't have the stats on it, but I'm guessing that the mortality rate at a assisted living community or a nursing home is already high to begin with. So they're talking about right. mortality rates. But when you take away the ability for them to see their families and to see the reason that they are still fighting to live, that makes it, it, it demoralizes them. And to your point about people staying at home and domestic violence increasing, I read a story earlier today about a murder-suicide that occurred because a couple, a man, believed that he had contracted coronavirus and had given it to his wife, so he killed her and then killed himself. Uh, there's there's going to be so many of these stories. I heard another story from Canada where you know a woman was at home with an, a partner who'd been kind of abusive. She had nowhere else to go, and he ended up killing her. Um, there's, there's just, there's no safety valve, right? Like maybe she got out of the house to work or something like that every day, but now it's 24 hours and he sits there drinking, getting upset. And, uh, you know, she does something to trigger him. And all of a sudden he's, he's, he's killed her. And like it, would it have happened if it hadn't been for the coronavirus? But nobody thought about this when they said, we can all stay at home. And, you know, we'll all play board games with our kids and watch movies and life's going to be wonderful. But for a lot of people, um, it's it's not that way. They're I mean, I live by myself. Out of prison. Pri- they're letting people out of prison who not everybody they're letting out is just a minor drug offense. That's kind of mm-hmm. how they present it. But they're letting a lot of people out. They're letting some people out who have a, a history of sexual crimes. They're letting people out potentially domestic violent offenders. So this is, they're putting, they're setting up situations that is going to cause bad outcomes. And this might just be the beginning if they do continue to enact these policies that create more deaths or fewer, like kind of getting ahead of it, coming to the emergency room and they will prolong the situation, which is having real uh, damage. Yeah. And, and I, I want to go back to hospital patients. Like, it's known that hospital patients that get visitors do better. It's known that, that being intubated is traumatic. There's a study so, that proves, there's tons of studies that prove having people there to help you psychologically is almost as important as all of the other stuff, but none of the hospitals focus on it. Yeah, and, and now they've banned all of that. And not only that, so you, you don't have your daughter or son there to hold your hand and tell you everything's going to be okay. And the nurses... They can't hold your hand because they're wearing plastic gloves and they've got masks on. So, you know, it's not the same, right? Even if they hold your hand, it's it's like a robot holding your hand and you can't see their face. So how comforting is it to see somebody staring at you as if you're this massive wad of infection? Yeah, and in China, but, uh, it actually is a robot holding your hand because they have the robots might, might doing be. the jobs. Well, at least somebody's holding your hand. I mean, I think here, <laughs> these people have just become objects. Yeah. You know, they're on an... In, in, Intubate, they're intubated, they're not really moving, they're not really interacting, and so you kind of assume that they're, they're just passive objects. Until they get taken off the, uh, the ventilator, they're not thinking human beings, but they are, and they might be going through incredible trauma, and nobody's 
nobody's helping them. Speaking of China, though, I wanted to get your opinion on this. One thing that's creating, I think, a whole nother set of problems is talking about China as an enemy, that there's a kind of undercurrent, that it could be an act of war, that this is a bioweapon that was released. And I, you know, I actually, when people are talking about like the Spanish flu, this could be another Spanish flu. They have Spanish flu somewhere in a lab. And from the very beginning of this, probably, I may say, after you kind of woke me up to thinking this way, I thought I'm not even convinced that if they wanted to create another Spanish flu epidemic exactly as it rolled out before, that they could do it purely by releasing a virus without all the other things like poor nutrition, poor sanitation, poor medical care generally, or poor uh, other environmental factors there was a war on. And similarly... When they well, talk about gain of function with the viruses and a bioweapon, a viral uh, bioweapon, I wonder if that's even possible. It's, it's buying into the godlike nature of virologists, and, and I think it's BS. Um, the 1918 flu, there's a famous uh, public health official. His name is still spoken in hushed tones, Joseph Goldberger. I see that he was nominated for the... Uh, the Nobel Prize, and he did some good stuff. He apparently realized that pellagra was not um, an infectious disease, which at, at his time in the early 1900s, it was believed by many people to be infectious. But he did an experiment during the 1918 flu, a really disgusting experiment. He took some prisoners from a prison, and I guess he offered them reduced sentences or something like that. And he would take nasal swabs from these people dying of the 1918 flu, and he rubbed it inside the nose of the prisoner, and he had the these people cough in the faces of the prisoner, and he, he did the most disgusting possible experiments on these prisoners, and not a single prisoner got sick. Really? During, so and this is This is the this Spanish flu, so... This is so. Would it be your opinion that the Spanish flu pandemic was not? I mean, I, I maybe this is just beating a dead horse, and you've made your position very clear. But that the Spanish flu is not a viral phenomenon. No, I, I mean it, there were so many environmental connections. It started on a military base. Why did it start? Well, the military de the base decided they were going to burn all their horse manure, so they created this this huge cloud of like partially burned horse manure that hung over the military base for days. And, you know, God knows whether somebody said, look, we got some chemicals to get rid of, you know, we're burning stuff, why don't we just throw those on too, right? Uh, another example of, of the um, Spanish flu was that soldiers on troop ships going across the Atlantic in World War I, uh, at the end of World War I, were dying like flies, but not the sailors, these, these um, soldiers were going across in the winter. They had, you know, summer, they, they, had very, they were very poorly dressed. They were, you know, mostly Midwesterners. They didn't know what it was like to be on the North Atlantic. The sailors, they had, you know, raincoats and thick sweaters, and they were used to being out in the Atlantic in the winter, so they were protected, so the sailors were fine. So basically the soldiers were freezing to death, um, you know, not being properly fed or dressed. And, and so they were dying, but it was, it was clearly not acting like an infectious disease. But probably the best example of how non-infectious some of these things are occurred during the SARS epidemic, um, where the Chinese performed an accidental experiment that if you'd asked to perform it, it would have been the most unethical thing possible, but they, they did it without realizing what they were doing. So it happened and, and we can learn from it. 
so they had this hospital in Guangzhou, uh, the epicenter of the SARS epidemic, and they the AIDS floor was only half occupied. So, of course, they put SARS patients on the other half of the floor. These are uh, immunodeficient people. Right. So you have the most infectious virus known to man on one side <laughs> of the floor, and you have eight immunosuppressed patients on the other side. And these were not just HIV positive. These were people suffering from um, opportunistic infections. So they were showing signs of immunosuppression, not just HIV positive people who were healthy. The, the people who wrote the paper said that although the two sides of the floor were separated, there was a corridor between them that the staff used, and all the windows in the corridor were open, so there was free airflow between the two sides. At one end of the floor, there was kind of a lounge where the patients could mix freely. There was an AIDS patient who was accidentally roomed with the SARS patients because it was supposed to be SARS on one side, AIDS on the other. Despite all of this, there were zero cases of SARS found in the AIDS patients. So, like, how can this be considered an infectious disease when you can't infect immunosuppressed people? Well, it makes this, no sense. Yeah, this makes me think about, I don't know how to put it, but I remember... I, I was in like a class once, actually in law school. It had nothing to do with medicine or anything. And the, the teacher said, hey, I just heard that chickenpox is contagious up to 14 days. So if everybody just stays home for 14 days, chickenpox will be eradicated. And that always stuck with me. I was like, that's funny. I wonder if, I mean, for years, I thought, I wonder if everybody stayed in for 14 days, like how many things would be eradicated? And I kind of want to ask you a little bit about chickenpox, but I also wonder, like, now that they have us completely isolated from one another, wouldn't that just eliminate, if germ theory is correct, wouldn't it eliminate kind of a lot of these yeah, diseases that are supposedly communicable? So I think what happened with um, the COVID-19 is that they have this theory <clears throat> that if you can catch a new virus early and you can surround it, you know, when everybody stands there with their antivirus guns and they all fire at the same time, <laughs> you can destroy every last virus particle and it's over. Uh, but if it's not a viral disease, if you just think it's a viral disease, it's obviously not going to work. And so what they've done is for the first time, they have put this draconian measures into action. And what they are discovering is that they don't work. And I think one of the reasons is, even if the virus exists, and even if the test for the virus can sometimes detect the virus, there has to be a problem with false positives. So let's say that 1% of the, of the population will register false positive on the coronavirus test. Uh, that means that if you did eliminate the virus, you would never know, because you would keep getting people testing positive. So you can't actually eliminate the virus in your mind because you're still going to be getting people testing positive. And they're, they're going to find this. They keep saying, we need more testing. Well, if you do more testing, you're going to get more cases. And you're going to get a minimum of 1% of the people you, you test are going to be positive. I mean, in the U.S., for some reason, it's closer to 10%. So about, you, want a, yeah. you want a, an epidemic of a million cases? Well, just <laughs> keep it. testing. Well, but what about the a reality? So for you personally, if you looked out on the world, what would you expect 
to see two months from now? Would you expect in your lifetime or next year or whatever for you to actually witness fewer people getting sick? Or is it simply that these kind of things that we think of as seasonal flu, seasonal colds are, are really almost totally environmental? And see, because I'm thinking this should disprove uh, not bacterial, but like viral theory of disease 100% because we should be, they should all die this way, regardless of the testing. They, they should have been able real. to, they should have been able to cut it off in China. <clears throat> if, if it was, if it was purely viral, if there was a 100% right, okay. accurate test. Yeah. But I, I mean, even, even if it, it's viral, they, they have um, this, this, belief they have is kind of crazy because if you have a significant number of asymptomatic cases, maybe I'll take that back. I'm not sure it would have been possible if it was viral, if you have a significant number of asymptomatic cases, if say it started in Wuhan and, um, you know, you had a hundred really sick people, that might mean there's 10,000 asymptomatic cases. And if the asymptomatic cases are infectious, then, you know, of course, it's going to rip around Wuhan and then people who are asymptomatic get on airplanes and they go around the world. So it, it, if, if it was viral and there were asymptomatic cases, it would be impossible to stop it because they're not, you can't test everybody. And the last people you're going to test are asymptomatic. But there's, there's lots of examples that say that, it's, that the test is bringing up results that don't appear to be an infectious disease. You know, like the first cases in Italy had no connection with any foreign case. And then they found some guy in some southern part of Italy, kilometers from anybody else, miles from anybody else, you know, 100 miles from any other case. And uh, he tested positive. Why did he test positive? He hadn't traveled. Wow. He he tested positive because the test is not for a virus. Uh, The test might be registering RNA that indicates you have um, a respiratory problem, which they already knew because he went to the hospital because he had a respiratory problem. So I think this is what's happening. The Italians foolishly said, if you have a respiratory problem, come to the the hospital and get tested. Even if it is sometimes a test for a virus, if there's false positives, they're more likely to occur in people with respiratory disease. And so this guy was probably... Uh, a false positive. And probably the first 30 cases in Northern Italy were false positives. But once you start finding these cases and then you start testing everybody who shows up at the hospital with respiratory disease, you start getting thousands of cases. And one thing that you don't see on these graphs of cases is a graph, or not very often, is a graph of the number of tests. But if you look at the number of tests and the number of cases, they're parallel graphs. So, so they're it's a not very simple testing equation. people they think have it. Well, they might be. But what I'm saying is the percentage of people who test positive is relatively constant. In the United States, it's been around 10% since the beginning. In Korea, it was around 3%. In Canada, around 1%. And those differences are probably have something to do with the type of machinery they're using, their protocols for testing, how they collect samples, et cetera, So, but et cetera. what I'm saying is, in the beginning here, they were saying, don't waste tests on anybody you're not pretty sure has it. So that should have had a much higher positive results then. Now they're saying test everyone. And what it looks like is happening is, back then it looked like we had fewer cases, and now it looks like we have a lot more cases, and it seems to be highly correlated with what you're saying, I think, is... Uh, yeah. Right. Uh, uh, 
the I looked at uh, data from one of the hardest parts of of California, Santa Clara, and they had a graph of the age range of the cases, and the majority of the cases were between thirty and sixty. Okay, the people who were testing positive, but the majority of the deaths were between seventy and ninety. So there's there's a lot of people, a, a lot of young people. If you if you go around testing healthy young people, you will find a lot of people testing positive, but they're not dying. They're not getting sick and dying. And the people who do, like when you read, uh, you know, uh, uh, these stories that the newspapers love to have, a 35 year old who dies of the coronavirus, you often find that there's other things going on. Like I, the first story like that I read, some. 20-something-year-old soccer coach in Spain, well, he had leukemia. Like, he wasn't a and previous healthy... And even if you had something like that a long time ago, chemo can can do permanent damage. Mm. Or if you had been on a ventilator a long time ago, there's a lot of things that can cause permanent damage that they'll say he was totally healthy, but maybe he wasn't. Binkley, they're classifying. You, you caught that story. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we talked about that that soccer story. We've been trying to kind of keep track of the stories where it's like, young person dies of coronavirus, and then you open it up, and it's like, after being shot in the head, you know, <laughs> tested coronavirus. It's true. It's, and they're saying they're actually counting all deaths yeah. of people. They said that. If you test it, positive... Yeah. It doesn't matter what you die of. You get classified as a coronavirus test. And now they're extending that further to if you're suspected of being around someone that had a coronavirus death, had a, had the coronavirus and you die in your home, it's automatically classified as a coronavirus. And my death. biggest problem is that they're changing or one of my problems is that they're changing the parameters of diagnosis, of counting the deaths and all that, and they're not going back and changing the numbers. So you cannot see the vector yeah. Or the trend. Well, they're yeah. saying that they're undercounting them and that there's all these false negatives and that everyone has it is what they're saying now. How, how could well, you have a false negative? If, if I, I can quote, the Daily Telegraph in England interviewed Professor Walter Ricciardi, scientific advisor to Italy's Minister of Health. So I think he, he has some credibility. He said, Italy's death rate may appear higher because of how doctors record fatalities. The way in which we code deaths in our country is very generous in the sense that all people who die in hospitals with the coronavirus, with the coronavirus, are deemed to be dying of the coronavirus. He said on reevaluation by their equivalent of the National Institute of Health, only 12% of death certificates have shown a direct causality from coronavirus, while 88% of patients have at least one pre-morbidity, many had two or three. Well, actually the the report that I read from the ISS is that 99% had one or more uh, pre-existing condition. So it might be that only 1% of the people died. And then you have to say, like, why would there be an increased death rate in people who didn't die of the coronavirus? Like, why are these 88% of people dying? Is it because they're being treated so aggressively with antiviral drugs, corticosteroids, tons of antibiotics, intubation? Is that the reason why the death rate shot up? I, I'm under the assumption that, I mean, when they're changing protocols and changing our behaviors, they statistically, you're supposed to at least try to control for those variables. And if there are variables that offset each other in that, 
kind of analysis, you should talk about that too. But when you're actually changing the protocols or changing the way that people are tested or changing who gets help under what circumstances, all of those things have statistically, I would, I, they must have statistically significant well, impact or, they, or such things wouldn't be recommendations the, trying to the, move the dial. The, the basic principle of experimental science is that you change one variable. I mean, scientists go through hoops to try to set up uh, an experiment where you only have one variable. You have the active drug and you have the placebo. And everything else is the same. They will um, you know, analyze the socioeconomic characteristics of the people and they will make sure that the ages in the two groups that are randomly selected are reasonably similar and that, and that the level of education or, you know, depending on what they're looking at, they will analyze all of these factors about the people and they will make sure that these two randomly selected groups are similar. And why do they do that? Well, they don't want a variable. I mean, what if all the university grads were, you know, taking the drug and all the people who hadn't gone to university were taking a placebo? Well, is there something different about those groups? Do university grads have more money? Do they eat better? Right? That would be, that would completely invalidate the experiment. So they go to great lengths to get it down to only one variable so that they can draw conclusions. But here we have supposedly a virus. We have intubation. We have antiviral drugs. We have hydroxychloroquine. We have rheumatoid arthritis drugs for some reason. Um, we have, uh, did I say corticosteroids? Mm -hmm. We have probably more aggressive treatment with antibiotics. Um, we have isolation of the patient so that they feel completely alone. And, and these that are people all variables. can't monitor their health care. See, that's the thing is that my father died kind of unattended. He was in the hospital, and we just were too naive to realize you're supposed to sit there. And he literally died of malpractice. Like, they closed the hospital. They didn't send us any bills. Like, it was terrible. But my lesson then was never leave somebody alone in the hospital. Always sit with them and make sure that they're being treated as well as they can. Evaluate it for yourself. That alone, to me would spike the death rate. But do, do you have any opinion, David, on why these things are obvious to me as a layperson? I mean, you immerse yourself in this stuff, but me, I just look at it and I think, why is that idiot not just talking about the stuff I learned in fifth grade science about science, the hypothesis and testing and all that stuff? Why are they I, not talking about that? I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of despair. We, we're taught through... Uh, through schools and through television shows and movies that we are supposed to have total faith in this wonderful medical system that we've built. But as I learned more about the medical system, there's a, there's a paper in the Journal of the American Medical Association around the year 2000 that, that analyzed uh, hospital deaths in the year 1998 and concluded that 106,000 people in America had died from properly prescribed pharmaceuticals. They had died from adverse reactions to properly prescribed. And then somewhere like else it said... three times the amount of car crashes. Yeah, and then right. there, somewhere else and it said what? 35,000 had died from improperly prescribed pharmaceuticals. Wow. So an overdose or the wrong drug or, you know, uh, the, the drug was prepared in the wrong way or was, or was injected instead of being eaten or something like that. Um, and then, of course, this is just hospitals. So you've got over-the-counter drugs... Uh, I don't know if this included mental institutions, didn't include prisons. Uh, the U.S. military gives out drugs. So some people have said, you know, the American medical system could kill a million people a year, which would make it the leading cause of death. And yet this is the shiny system that we're so proud of. I mean, it's true that if you get hit by a bus and you get taken to emergency, 
there are incredibly skilled surgeons who can do their best to put you back together. And th that kind of medicine, where there's something physically wrong with you, uh, the medical system does really well. But if you yeah, go to a doctor... lacerations and stuff, yes. Right. That, that's what I was thinking, too. Like, they, they can do that. They can. They're good mechanics. Right. Yes. But if you go to a doctor and say, I'm sad all the time, um, <laughs> you're, you're going to end up on that antidepressants. can make that a lot worse real quick. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you're going to yeah. be on antidepressants. He doesn't tell you to go for a walk in the sun. He tells you to put sunscreen on. That's another or, thing. I know this maybe sounds woo-woo, but, like... This idea of sunscreens and, and all that kind of stuff when vitamin D is so correlated to physical and emotional health. I mean, people should talk about that a little more. Yeah. I mean, if the, if the doctor asked some questions and it, it's, it's like, I lost my job, I started drinking, my wife left me, my kids hate me. It's like, okay, a pill is not going to undo all of those things. And, right. and I, I, I think there's a lot of things in our life. And, and then, of course, as you pointed out, uh, nutrition and, you know, just being outside so that you can get the vitamin D and just breathe sleeping in the fresh at air. night. You know, they say yes. sleeping at night is very important. Being awake during the day and being in the sun, like little things like that, which no one I mean, doctors are not actually taught any of that. They're not. You can talk to them and they will say, honestly, like, I am not really qualified to speak on that because we didn't learn nutrition <laughs> in school. Right. And, and what is the, what is it going to do to so many people who are so traumatized, they won't go outside unless it's absolutely necessary. And so they're not going to get the fresh air and the vitamin D that they would normally get. They might go for a, a run a couple times a week or something like that. Even if they're not like super athletic, they, they probably get out a couple times a week for a little bit of exercise. And probably don't realize that at the same time they're breathing in fresh air and, you know, breathing out all the dust and stuff they accumulate at home. I'm telling you, just running into the store, running, I run around like crazy. I'm a mom. I have teenagers. They're all doing sports. I'm like sitting there at the soccer thing, waiting for my kid, running after the other ones, blah, blah, blah. My, I have become so much more sedentary, even though I still have these kids to take care of. But David, I have always wanted to ask you this question that is like relevant to your stuff, but it's off the COVID question. And I, this is the one thing. Thing that I just cannot intuit an answer to. Can I ask you something a little bit off of the topic? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I am basically convinced like uh, about colds and flu and stuff. It seems to me, uh, I don't know. I just, I, I'm not convinced that, that the viral theory of that stuff is as we're told it is. But when I look at anything called herpes, chicken pox, cold sores, shingles, it mm -hmm. looks to me, you know, you, they manifest themselves. My kids were vaccinated, although I kind of regret that. But I have a friend whose kids weren't. Her kids got chicken pox. My kids didn't. I, um, if I get a cold sore, I, get, I take um, brand name Val Acyclovir, and it works. My kids don't get cold sores. My husband doesn't get it, so I don't know if it's contagious. But, I mean, you can see it, and it, it seems communicable. I just can't get my mind around the herpes thing. Well, I, I, I haven't studied herpes, so I, I really can't say, you know, whether the virus exists. But I, I do think that one thing we need to keep in mind is that we not only can exchange pathogens, but we also share a lot of environmental factors. Like if, if, if you live in a family, then you eat pretty much the same food. You're breathing the same air in the house, which, you know, may have 
um, you know, a variety of different qualities? Do you have the windows open all the time, or it, are there some issues with, you know, chemicals seeping out of the water? How about the water you're drinking? Right, water. So you you share a lot of environmental factors. So the fact that sometimes people come down with the same disease at about the same time isn't proof that that it's infectious but that's how we interpret it that's how we're yeah, programmed I, that, that is how i kind of get past the flu and stuff like that i mean my my son who has terrible eating habits is the one who gets sick and i'm like so we all like i have great habits i never get sick but we're all exposed to the same thing maybe it's immune the the thing about like cold sores and herpes stuff like that like it it does come out during times of stress the theory is that it exists in your body it rests like in your spinal column or something and when you get stressed out, it manifests itself. But I, I could easily be convinced that it is a uh, a failure of your body to kind of be healthy because the stress has taken away like the normal healthy functioning. You know, I'm not totally yeah. convinced about it, but I just wondered if you yeah. had an opinion on it because that's the one that just looks different to I, me from yeah. I, I don't really have an opinion because yeah, I, yeah. No, I, I, I I can only look at I've I've kind of looked at some of the big viral diseases and you know i've drawn conclusions from that and I, i'm going to remain neutral on the ones that i i, I don't yes really know i respect about. that i have noticed that about you is that you absolutely you do your homework and you talk about the things that you know about and uh i wonder if you if you have any opinion about um well this is just a thought i had was that it looks to me, and I've gotten a lot of people send me pictures of this, that 5G is rolling out while we're all at home. I was afraid and, you were going to ask that. Um, yeah, okay, you don't so, have to answer it, yeah. No, no, I want to answer it. I'm a telecom consultant. Oh, right, I, yeah. Yeah, I have no um, uh, consulting arrangements with companies that produce 5G. I, I did have a expert witness contract with Huawei that was almost 10 years ago, and this was way before 4G. Well, it was around the time 4G came out, and it's way before 5G. But um, I think that in Wuhan, people are using 5G to explain something that might not need to be explained. I have not yet seen proof that there was a surge in deaths in Wuhan. So people are saying, 5G proves that the deaths in Wuhan were caused by 5G. And I'm saying, well, I'm skeptical that there was an increase in death rates. It's a, it's a city of 11 million people, and this whole thing started with seven people in quarantine at a hospital. Well, that could have been a case of food poisoning or, or pesticide poisoning. I'm totally poisoning. with you on the 5G thing, on the bioweapon right. okay. thing. Uh, yeah. uh, another thing I'd like to say is, is um, somebody latched on to the fact that 60 gigahertz is absorbed mm -hmm. by oxygen. And apparently the way it's absorbed is it changes the spin of the oxygen. But, but this is, this is um, a numerically illiterate um, theory. Let me explain. So uh, wireless systems transmit at extremely low powers. They do transmit in the microwave range. Um, a microwave oven, uh, the power is between, um, I think, 600 and 1,200 watts. A, uh, a cell phone maxes out at one watt. And a, a study I just saw recently showed that um, the average power of a cell phone was one to two percent of the maximum power. So normally it's transmitting at 0.01 watts. So what would happen is the 60 gigahertz signal would interact with the oxygen and it would energize some of the oxygen atoms. Uh, and then within a very short time, 
the oxygen atoms would return to the normal state and would release that energy as heat. So you can imagine a, say, a one-watt heating element 100 meters away from you. How much difference would that make in the ambient temperature around you? Essentially yeah, none. Yeah. And so, so by you, the time, yeah. so by time the oxygen gets to your lungs, it has reverted to the, the normal state. Now, if you were in an extremely high RF environment where maybe you had 1,000-watt transmitters and you were working in a you know, say mm -hmm. in a, some kind of satellite system, then you would need to take these things into account because it all comes down to the energy. Like a, a 600 watt or 1200 watt microwave oven, if you could put your arm inside, and luckily that's not very easy, you would, you know, really hurt yourself. Cook, yeah. Just, just as, for example, I, an analogy I use is like you're a cook in an, in a, uh, restaurant, you work 12-hour days, and there's an oven that's on 350 Fahrenheit all the time, and you work beside it, and obviously you're getting heat from the oven. And over, say, 10 years, you get way more than enough heat to cook you, but it doesn't cook you because your body can deal with low quantities mm. of energy. But if, if you were shoved inside the oven at 350, then obviously you'd die pretty quickly. And this is the same kind of thing, that you have this really low energy that's in the environment from 4G or 5G or 3G. Um, and the, the only thing I can think of is that there could be, if you were very close to a transmitter for a very long time, there could be some issues with resonance. So in other words, if, if you were near a 5G transmitter and, and it, the frequency resonated with certain things in your body, that could cause some problems. But the amount of energy is so low that it's really hard to see how this do you, could be a problem. Do you turn your phone off when you go to sleep at night for that for safety reasons? That's what that was going around for a while. You're making me feel a lot better because I stress out about well, this stuff. Okay, so one of the um, your phone doesn't transmit uh, unless it needs to. Like what will happen during the night if your phone's on is like every few minutes it will blurp out you know, for a fraction of a second, Here maybe it will check for emails or something like that. But it's basically off most of the time. Now, I put my phone on the floor beside the bed, and I do that because it's not good. And I turn off the ringer because it's not psychologically good to see that your phone lights up or something like that, because then you don't sleep properly, right? Like, I, I agree. Yeah. And similar. if you want to completely turn the phone off, that's fine. But the amount of energy it's producing versus... When you get up in the morning and you, you surf the web, you check the news, you, you maybe make a video call, you do all this stuff. Well, now it's transmitting a lot more, right? And you're still so, not afraid of that. No, because it's, you again, and, and the reason yeah. why cell phones use such low rates of energy has, well, first of all, if you, if you weren't careful with energy, like in terms of how strong the signal is, your battery would be even worse than it is now. And everybody complains because their battery doesn't last through the day, right? But the reason why cell phone companies are so careful about reducing the energy to the lowest possible level is, is not because they're worried about using too much energy. They're, the cost of electricity is pretty significant cost for cell phone companies. But because the interference between signals is due to the strength of the signal. So the way you can get more people on the system and make more money is by keeping everybody's signal at the lowest possible level. 
And so as you move towards or away from the cell site, from the tower, your power, will, this system will tell you, raise your power a little bit, reduce it a little bit. And they try to keep it at a level where any lower and your call would become gibberish, right? They try to keep it at just above that level. And that way they can get more people on the system and make more money. Well, and and that's the motivation. Less afraid. You're making me less afraid of... Well, so I was not afraid. When I first heard you a couple of years ago, I did like, I really changed my thinking about, about illness. And what it actually did, the positive was that I started thinking about health in a more like preventive way, thinking about like getting better nutrition and, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of stuff, which seems to me a very, regardless of what you think about infectious diseases, it seems like a great approach to overall health and keeping from getting ill that no one should, that should be promoted far and wide, well, regardless of yeah. the theories. I mean, cell phones do result in, in deaths. Uh, people walk across the street looking at their cell phone without <laughs> looking. I mean, it's Smombies. a serious problem, right? I mean, it, yes. that doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean that pedestrians are fair game if they're looking at their cell phones. But I mean, if you walk across the street without paying attention and, and a driver who's maybe also on the cell phone is likely to kill you. So uh, cell phones also cause traffic accidents, right? People are checking text messages yeah. and they have and a spiritual death. <laughs> well, they have yeah, a it, it destroys illness. people. Like if you get addicted to your cell phone, it destroys your ability to interact uh, with people. And I know I've been a little bit guilty of that. And I always, I'm trying you know, if I'm out for dinner, it's like, put that cell phone away. I have this tendency to to go, somebody says something like, um, you know, 55 million people died in the 1980s. Oh, yeah, I have a supercomputer in my pocket. <laughs> I, I want to I Google on. it right away, right? So I, yeah. I try to keep that down to a, a minimum because it's of the psychological impact. But I think there's probably other ways where, you know, cell phones can, you know, cause people to die. Um, but it's not, I don't think it's the RF that's, that's doing that. Although, as I say, it's all to do with energy. So if you work in a, in a, you know, a base area with lots of radio transmitters, the amount of energy you're getting mm -hmm. is much, much higher than you're walking down the street talking on your, I have seen stats phone. of people who install that stuff having, uh, uh, I was surprised to find this higher rates of suicide. So I don't know if it has something to do with, uh, <laughs> I don't know what I think one of the problems with electricity and, and cell phones is there's a lot of correlations. Like people who work with radio might also be exposed to more chemicals and other things like that. Um, I remember as a, as a high school student, I studied hydropower lines. And uh, I, I realized at that time that electrical power lines are often sprayed with the worst possible pesticides because... Otherwise, oh. they have to keep coming back yes. to um, to cut down the trees. Yeah, herbicides and, and, and pesticides, So they, yes. they are allowed to, to use pesticides that would not normally be used. Wow. And, of course, nobody wants to live beside a high-tension power line because of the noise that it produces. And so it tends to be poorer people who live in areas where there's there's lots of power lines coming together. It's an industrial part of the city, something like that. And so there's correlations between electricity and, and exposure to chemicals and, and other things. And, and maybe also it's never really dark in that part of the city because there's always lights from like the industrial facilities, things like that. So it's very easy to get um, 
uh, you know, we were talking about single variables. It's very mm -hmm. easy to get additional mm -hmm. variables coming into the equation. Yes. I just I love the way you think, David. I'm so happy I rediscovered you because for a long time, I could not remember what your website was. So I was like, who is that guy that questions virology? And then lately, you've been around. So I was well, able to find yeah, what happened again was 10 years ago, I decided to write a book called The Infectious Myth. And, you know, I was really busy with work and family and things like that. And so nothing really happened for 10 years, although I had already written a chapter on SARS that was like 90% complete and also I think polio and West Nile. But then when this coronavirus thing came up, I thought I have to, you know, get my chapter on SARS out there. And so I put it out as a free download because I, I felt like we're going through basically a repeat. It's just mm -hmm. that this repeat is like at 10 times the volume of the first one. And then I started to study this specific COVID-19 stuff and uh, have written, you know, a 20-page document. I was just reading that. It's really good. It starts exactly with what Binkley was like. They're just, why don't they talk about all the false positives? So we're going to have to make a study of that. But where, yeah. can you tell my listeners, like, how they can kind of keep in touch with what you're doing, listen to your well, podcast uh, and stuff like that? Yeah, theinfectiousmyth.com. And, and it's a very simple website, but everything is there, and I'm keeping it updated so it's it's kind of the hub. I, I want to have a better website, you know, more of a WordPressy thing with a blog, and people can interact more. But people can always send me an email, and trust me, a lot of people are. Watch out for WordPress. We got taken down from WordPress through. We were basically entrapped, entrapped, and they. Uh, so if they don't like what you're saying, they will take you down without oh, really? explanation. Yeah. Were oh, you yes. on WordPress.com, or were you? Did you have your own server? Uh, I was on WordPress.com, so now okay, I, I have my friend own of the server, show so yeah, has us on Classic Press on a different server, and we're fine, okay. but I just had adapted to that, and I put all my stuff on it, and it was really well, censorship. But of course, you, you're better than we are at that stuff. Uh, censorship Heck. is definitely an issue. Like uh, I, I have a Facebook group called Rethinking AIDS where people challenge the HIV AIDS paradigm, and we, we have 13,000 members. And about a year ago, Facebook took us down, and, and they, they, it, it, they gave us one of these, these choices. Like, I, I don't know what you call this, where, you know, choose door A or B, but if you choose the wrong door, we're going to shoot you. <laughs> that was about what it was. <laughs> and so what they said was, um, we've, we've determined that your mission statement or one of the posts or one of your photos or something on your website violates one of our 35 community <laughs> rules. So it's like, okay, which community rule does it violate? We don't know. Is it a post? Is it our mission statement? Is it an image that somebody put up? We have no idea. So I, I kind of sat around and they said, if you believe this is unfair, you can challenge this. You will only have one chance to challenge it. And if you lose your challenge, we will delete <laughs> the entire site. Right? Oh, that is what happens to That's me on like WordPress. In I ins yeah, I insisted that they give me an answer, and, and they just bleeped me out of existence overnight. What are you saying, Big In Bitcoin? the NFL, if you throw a challenge flag, if you don't agree with the call and you want to challenge it, you can throw a challenge flag. But if you lose the challenge, you lose a timeout. Oh, okay. It's a, it's the same kind of thing. But so like after... Facebook doesn't have that problem. Like the football does it to deter you. Yeah. 
But Facebook, right. they should tell you, obviously they came to that conclusion. Why isn't it when they identified the offending object and the rule it violated that those were real things they had in their grasp where they could have put them together and given them to you? Why so they, they basically they basically had the, our group on ice. And uh, so I thought, well, okay, if we continue the way it is, we can't add new members. Uh, the current members, unless they're moderators, can't even see the site. So the site is now completely useless. So I basically have to answer the challenge. So I, I went on and I, I, you know, I went through a bunch of posts and anything that seemed kind of controversial that was near the top. I deleted it, deleted maybe half a dozen posts that, you know, maybe somebody used the F word or something like that, stuff like that. And then I pressed the button and I said, give us uh, a review. And then two days later, the site was back. But, you know, great, great sigh of relief. But I mean, the alternative was being the site would have permanently disappeared with 13,000 people. And I had no way to get the names of those 13,000 people. That is really crazy. That is, well, you should definitely have those people. Uh, well, I mean, it might not hurt to have a repository of like an email blast. We have an emergency email list so that if it ever happens to us again, we can just kind of blast people. But 13, well, you'll never get you, that kind of. You can't get people's emails address is through Facebook. Like all we had was people's names. And most of these people are people we don't know. There's a lot of people from South Africa. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, oh. how are we going to find these people uh, in the future if, if we get cut off? So. I mean, it worked out okay for us, but I was I was extremely nervous when I finally pressed the button and said, "Okay, do it." You know, well, I'm sure you do. have a lot of validation with your AIDS work because people who have known uh, victims of AIDS and the and the AIDS medical establishment, like me, know that there were that. I mean, in my case, there's no doubt in my mind, and my mother, who has nothing to do with any kind of like deep thought or any of that. It completely agrees with me that my brother never had any, wasn't sick at all, and that it was the medicine mm. that killed him. So people just know from their own experience that you're right about that. Well, I just, I love it. I love what you're doing. Thank you. And thinking out of the box, and I love your um, scrupulousness and your your uh, attachment to science and facts in this world that they want us to worship science, and you're actually <laughs> holding them to their own standards, and I'm sure they don't like it. Well, one of the questions I get asked at times is like, you don't have a PhD or MD, so why should we listen to you? So my response to that is, if I had a PhD or an MD, would you believe what's in my article without thinking about it, without validating it? Because if that's the case, then it's you who has the problem. So what I have to do because of my lack of you know, superior credentials um, is I have to, to support every sentence that I, I state. So, you know, if I, if I say that the group of people in Italy were elderly, I can't just say that. I have to give you a link to the report. And that's the way it should be done. I mean, and so I it's actually, not a, a burden. I have made that exact same argument in that I used to have a terrestrial radio show on a radio um, station in Atlanta, right in the heart of the CDC. And after eight and a half years of being on the air, when I started talking about Event 201 and predicting kind of how this COVID thing was going to unfold, they took me off the air. But I had noticed in that, in that line of work that I didn't believe Fox, I didn't believe CNN, and I would say the stuff that I came up with 
and I would get attacks from people who watched Fox and CNN all day long who would cite that as the source. And of course, it's not a source. It's just people reporting. But in order for me to refute that source, which got the benefit of the doubt, I would have to prove. So I would say, I'm the one with the evidence. So you're the ones who don't have any evidence. The, the mainstream media has bears a, a huge responsibility for what's happened with coronavirus. My analysis is that they go after politicians mercilessly, and that's their job. And I applaud the media for going after Trump or Biden or Sanders or any other politician. That's, that's all great. But they don't do it to medical officials. They never challenge medical officials. They have for so many years just accepted that whatever the CDC says or whatever other major medical institutions say, you know, big hospitals, things like that, they just accept it as fact. They're so honored to be able to write down the words of these, these great people. And so that leads to them being completely one-sided on vaccines, uh, always promoting whatever the new drug is for whatever the new condition, always you know promoting how deadly the latest disease is. And in, in this case, their inability to criticize, to well, not to criticize, to ask tough questions of health officials has led us down this road where we we have to continually up the ante on on our response to this. So instead of going to Tony Fauci and saying, well, you know, what is the false positive rate of this test? And if we eliminated the virus and we still had false positives, how do we ever know we'd eliminated the virus? And are people being intubated because of fear of of um, healthcare workers being infected? Yeah. Right? Like those are questions that should be asked and healthcare officials should be put on the spot. Another great one is like, have you calculated how many deaths will be caused because of quarantining the entire population? How many extra suicides? How many extra alcohol abuse deaths, drug abuse deaths, um, domestic violence deaths? How many extra deaths are going to occur because of what you're doing? They're just, you know, health officials are getting away with assuming that the death rate is zero on the other side. So they're saying we're going to save 100,000 Americans from the coronavirus and the number of people who are going to die because of quarantining the entire population is zero. And well, that to me is the smoking gun because a cost-benefit mm -hmm. analysis of policy is the default. I mean, people who take political science, take economics, take any of that, they act like they're actually, you know, bureaucracy is a science and that you have to, like, don't be an ideological libertarian. I'm an ideological libertarian. They're like, don't, don't rest on your ideological laurels. Government is about administration. Government is about policy. Yeah. Well, just like science is supposed to be about science, they're not living up to their own standards. And I would say that those medical professionals, the medical uh, experts, are exploit that pass that they get from the media and are themselves political. They're politicians. They're very and, good and politicians. Behave the same way. I, I mean, all politicians, you know, to some extent, except Trump, but I mean, even Trump is being pushed around. Um, all politicians completely suck up to medical officials. So medical officials said, say, uh, we're going to jump off the cliff and we need you to force the population to come with us. And so the politicians turn around and they start herding us towards the cliff. And some of us say, I don't want to jump off the cliff. And, and they say, well, it's too late. We we've already listened to the experts and they say that jumping off the cliff is what's needed to end this epidemic, which I guess would be true. If everybody jumped off a cliff, there'd be no coronavirus. <laughs> That's right. There'd be, be no more death. Coronavirus would be the cause of death though. 
But exactly. That's, why, <laughs> that's right. Yes. But that's why what your your approach is so important, and that's why, like, I was thinking that when not being at my father's bedside, like that, that you need to start thinking of yourself, thinking for yourself, like what makes sense. Make sure that these things are internally consistent, or there's proof of what it is. Use your own head about what's uh, the source of good health and, you know, take, take whatever you want, but I mean, verify it and use your, yes, use your own critical thinking to not just accept it because there's an MD or a PhD right. at the end of it. If people want to do something, I, I would suggest that, you know, writing to your local politicians is a, is a good idea. And there's a really interesting article, uh, which is, which is a kind of a good summary of, of not, Arguments as as, as um, deep as mine, but medical experts. Uh, the title of the article is 12 Experts Questioning the Coronavirus Panic," and these are people who are decades of experience in medical scientific fields. Often they're retired, which gives them more freedom to, to talk. But being retired also means that they've spent an entire career in in medicine, and they're all contradicting the mainstream. Um, uh, advice. And, and so you could include that with a letter saying, you know, here's experts who, who know far more than you or me, and they're saying that we should have not shut down the economy. And they're medical experts. We're not talking about economists who, who think that the damage is, is great. We're talking about medical experts. And uh, I think politicians need to start hearing from people that we don't believe that what you're doing is, is the right thing. We think you've destroyed the economy for reasons that are completely unjustified. Well, David, I think that's a fantastic place to end this. A real concrete call to action. We'll put in the show notes, 12 experts questioning the coronavirus panic. And then we'll encourage people to go to their local politicians, even their local newspapers, their local outlets promoted on their own social media so that we have some start to hold people to some standards and hold their feet to the fire. I love the work you're doing. I so am grateful for the time you spent with us. I know I kept you over. I'm sorry, but I've been wanting to talk to you for so it, long. It's been lovely to talk to both of you. Thanks so and much you, for having me if, on. If, if there's ever anything that you that you think we need to know or you want an uh, opportunity to spread the word on something, please let us know. And in the meanwhile, uh, I hope people follow your work at theinfectiousmyth.com and listen to some of your podcasts and your great interviews. Thank you again, David. Thanks, Dave. Thank you very much, and, and goodbye. Thanks, Brad. Okay.